Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hello, listener. Thank you for joining us for episode 14 of the Digital Bulletin podcast. Alongside me in our, quotes studio, fresh from escaping pod responsibilities last month, we welcome back Digital Bulletin content director, James Henderson. Good morning. And alongside James, somebody who has tried everything to have a month off, but I just won't allow it. It's Digital Bulletin <laughs> CEO, Romilly Broad. My time's coming. I'm sure it is. <laughs> One day. <laughs> um, chaps, we've been doing these pods now for over a year. Uh, really? Has that that time flown by or can you not remember a time before I dragged you away from your actual job to do this? (laughs) That's um, that's a a year really already. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that at all, does it? It must be because it's so entertaining and engaging. (laughs) That's what it is. Absolutely. James, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. It's, um, yeah, I can't quite believe it's been a year since we started doing this. I remember when it was really novel and um, now it isn't. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, still enjoying it. <laughs> Although a month off was was nice, obviously. Oh, your your um, enthusiasm is yeah. infectious, James. I, 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 I meant for the listener rather than me. You know, someone <laughs> who actually knew what they were talking about was on. So, I'll have to put up with me again this month. I remember when we started out, we were walking around the the city centre of Norwich trying mm. to find a location to record this thing. Like on the day we were meant to be recording it, it was pretty desperate times. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We we asked in a holiday inn whether we might have a room we could rent for the hour, which, <laughs> looking back on it, is completely ridiculous. Obviously, well, unbelievably, um, things have regressed even from there to the to the point where <laughs> we we don't even see each other anymore, and we do it over a um a video call. But you know, that's how all podcasts are done these days. Right, listener, upcoming on the pod for you today, we have an exclusive interview with Anna Chung from Palo Alto Networks to talk about cybersecurity and the dark web. We will be putting our Labara case study under the microscope, and we're going to be chatting about a very awkward moment for the CEO of Google. But first, here's some news. Now, one story that caught my attention this week was Twitter appointing famed hacker Peter Zatko, or Mudge, as he's more widely known, as its new head of security. This is a bold move from the social media giant, but maybe one that's needed after a series of embarrassing security breaches recently. We've also seen Python's creator Guido Van Rossum join Microsoft after deciding that retirement was, quote, too boring. He's now part of Microsoft's developer division to do, well, we don't really know what yet, but we'll find out at some point, I'm sure. Another story that caught the eye was IBM becoming the latest service provider to build a private cloud specifically for telcos. As we move to 5G, many companies are competing fiercely to deliver the underlying infrastructure and we're only going to hear more and more of those types of stories for sure. Elsewhere, we've seen Adobe finalizing the $1.5 billion acquisition of Workfront, Virgin Hyperloop complete its first ever passenger journey, and AWS revealing plans for huge expansion in India. Now you can read the reporting on these stories and many more via the bulletin on digitalbulletin.com. But next, we are going to take a look at a story that emerged at the end of last week. Now, we have read and heard a lot about the growing tensions between Europe and big tech recently. And on Friday, a bizarre incident was reported. Worth hearing about this one, listener, for sure. So it all stemmed from a video call that Alphabet's and Google CEO Sundar Pichai was having with Thierry Breton, who is the EU's internal market commissioner, but also some kind of kind of tech spokesman for the EU. He was previously the CEO of ATOS. Now, this call was arranged by Google to discuss the proposed regulations in Europe that will see 
companies like Google, Amazon, Microsoft, et cetera, having to share data and generally be reined in a little bit on the continent. But just as the call was getting going, Breton pulled out a leaked document from somebody at Google detailing a 60-day plan to fight back against the EU rules. Brilliant story, this. Rom, first of all, how great would it mean to be a fly on the virtual wall of that meeting when um, Breton dramatically yeah. unveiled this leaked document? Yeah, I, it would have been brilliant. I, th I think uh, Breton probably loved that moment as well, <laughs> as a uh, not as not just as a politician, which is obviously, but also as a, a leader of large technology companies himself. Not just Atos, but you know others, uh, France Telecom as well, I think, and others. Um, just to, just to have that moment over the the boss of uh, Google, <laughs> it's just probably that's that's it, isn't it? You could dine out on that for years. But I th what was revealing, I think, was his comments afterwards where he said, look, um, I wasn't surprised that this letter existed. <laughs> I'm not naive. And it's like, well, yeah, OK, it was a nice moment, but it was fairly obvious that Google and everyone else are coming up with those sorts of strategies. You just don't normally hear about it. Um, but the, the sheer scope, the sheer threat that uh, the, you know, the Digital Services Act uh, represents for people like Google and you know the big tech companies um, not just big tech companies out of the US by the way potentially lots of technology companies um, is a clear and present danger over the next few years and so you know yeah people are going to have all sorts of strategies and you'd be what would be surprising is, is if they didn't right yeah, yeah. But, still, I'd, but still I'd love to know how a Breton kind of came into possession of that document and b at what point he decided that he was just going to on this call with um, Sundar Pichai, just unveil it so dramatically. I think that I'd just love to love to have seen that moment. Do you, um, think, um, do you think he just sort of lifted it up really slowly from the bottom of the video call, <laughs> you, or, so, or just brought it in, brought it in the side of the of the frame? Well, Rom, I've got a leaked document now about you, which I'm just now going to unveil. Oh, no, there we go. It's oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I must stress that Sundar Pichai did kind of say he had, he had no knowledge of this information and had never seen the document before. So just get that in there. But you've kind of hinted at it already, Rom, but d doesn't this give us a window into kind of the very real battle that is happening right now between these huge companies and these huge political bodies and organizations who are kind of coming to a head and have been now for, for a while? But the Digital Services Act, as you said, is really the kind of point where the crunch is going to be quite loud, isn't it? Well, it's this is probably I I don't know, but it's probably the most seismic and important uh, piece of legislative uh, action uh, of the first half of this century. Basically, it's going to set as Europe often does. It's it's going to set the tone for what then ends up becoming fairly standard globally. They kicked it off really with GDPR, obviously, which has now been mirrored and echoed in similar forms elsewhere. Um, and what they what they're simultaneously trying to do is to say, look, big tech um, is uh, look, it's great actually in a lot of respects. I mean, we're all working from home now because of them. Um, however, there are you know big emerging problems with it. How do you regulate and indeed tax properly big gatekeeping type? companies like the big social media platforms, Amazon, Apple, etc. How do you make sure that they are behaving properly given their overwhelming power? And a key to the whole thing as well is liability. They want, you know, Europe are saying, look, you can't just completely avoid any liability forever in terms of selling illegal stuff 
uh, or you know dodgy trading practices, illegal content of various kinds. The debate really is going to be, well, hang on, where do you draw all the lines and the boundaries around this stuff? But wherever those boundaries get drawn in the end, it's a threat to the existing business models of people like Google and so on. Because um, this cuts across advertising as well, of course. And that's like the mainstay of certainly things like Facebook and Google to a great degree. So um, it's going to be quite the bun fight and it will be really interesting. It's going to take years, by the way. Um, but over the following years, it's going to be interesting to see how broad this is or whether they end up deciding, look, this is far too complicated. We're going to just make it a really narrow thing and we're going to just apply it to certain companies. But once it's all done, um, it will set the geopolitical uh, context certainly between Europe and, and America, because the American government, by the way, will get involved in this as well at some point. Um, in fact, I would refer you back to your own article in the current <laughs> issue of Digital Bulletin, which goes, it's really re re revealing and interesting as an article um, to say, you know, how Europe is tackling the infrastructure part of this. Um, American companies essentially own the digital infrastructure of Europe and, and Europe is alive to that and they're trying to change that. It's all part of this big picture. So go and read that for sure. But yeah, it's it's a massive, massive deal. As much as little amusing anecdotes like this one are uh, kind of like the starting gun for the whole thing, uh, it's going to be uh, seismic and important and also extremely boring for the next few years <laughs> anything involving the eu is is by definition extremely boring but um it's not just google obviously although google has seemed to have had its uh, a, a few more run-ins with the eu than than some of the other tech companies but james we've also seen amazon come under the eu's glare just last week with the threat of 28 billion dollars worth of fines over the use of third-party data what did you make of that i mean the pressure is ramping up the eu is 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 playing playing the game here isn't it yeah, it does very much feel like the, the the EU certainly has its its target on on big tech at the moment, doesn't it? Seems to on the bulletin that we write for every day, if not every day, every other day, I seem to be or you seem to be writing about uh, potential probes into misconduct or antitrust or or whatever it might be. And with with Amazon, um, it's about how they use data. Essentially, this is a case about big data. I think that's what the competition commissioner said, and that's that's very much what it's about. And it's it simply comes down to obviously companies uh, trade on there as as third parties. I think if you speak to most companies who do, they feel like they have to. They don't want to be locked out of that Amazon ecosystem. Um, and you know. The, the probe will look at how it has used that third party data to inform its own decisions about product development and uh, and what it sells and how it sells them so you know it has all its data coming in from from third party sellers um and is able to to use it um to to produce products to go directly into competition with them um which which doesn't seem right frankly yeah um but yeah it's, it's very much about how it, how it's using the data and that that i think the, the 20 the 28 billion figure comes from well actually the eu is allowed to hand down fines equivalent to 10 percent of turnover which when you're out is quite a lot of money <laughs> Yeah, that's a fair amount of cash, isn't it? Um, it's, it's interesting that the whole point about data, I mean, I had a look at the kind of minutiae of the Digital Services Act and I looked at kind of what is actually being proposed here. And one of, one of the um, proposed kind of regulations, Rom, is the, sharings, the sharing of data with smaller companies in the same industry. So the likes of AWS having to share data with 
maybe cloud providers who are operating at a far smaller scale and this is all to kind of make sure competition is fair in the marketplace i mean that's that's an interesting one isn't it that one that's a really fun one isn't it can you imagine yeah. um <laughs> data is essentially you know the oil uh, we've heard we hear that phrase all the time um it's oh, the fuel no, not, no, tell me you've not tell me you've not dropped in data is the new oil <laughs> i didn't say new oil because it's not that new anymore it's just it is it's the lubricant of everything right it's it is the value uh, at the heart of of all these business models and what the eu saying is uh sure yeah you can invest billions of dollars building infrastructure and systems to collect and leverage all this data but now you've got to give it to other people and so like, well what um it's I, yeah i how that's going to work in practice obviously i've got no idea big platforms control of that data is ultimately where they where they have their power um if they have to hand it away or give access to other people to it then you know who ultimately is in charge of any of this and and why would they even participate i mean it's a massive minefield yeah and the the kind of digital future of europe is dependent on where this ends up isn't it where what what compromise the the big tech companies because the big tech tech companies are obviously going to fight this tooth and nail and the the idea that they would share all of their data with competitors not just with the EU maybe, but with actual competitors in industry seems to me something that they probably don't really want to do. Now, as Rom, as Rom kindly mentioned earlier, I, I did do a piece in the most recent issue of Digital Bulletin on data sovereignty in Europe with a focus on kind of the major cloud players. And um, it it got me the title of IT services fanatic given to me by James um, yep. in, in the magazine. Now that, that article, I think is, is worth a look um, if you want to go deeper into this topic. James, thank you for that title. I think I might put it on LinkedIn. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. Which, which of our core topic areas would you be fanatical about if you had to be? Like you've labeled me an oh. IT services fanatic, then what, what about yourself? Oh, well, you've really you, you put me on the spot there. Oh, I would, can, I, can I have two? Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, you can have two. I think it would either be data intelligence because you know, that's where you get to write about, you know, a lot of the cool stuff that's been done with AI and, and algorithms and stuff like that, um, or connectivity, because I'm quite nerdy when it comes to like telecoms. And, um, and obviously, the story about 5G, which is, you know, will be one of the biggest technological leaps of, of our lifetime, really. So I'll go connectivity. There you go, connectivity. There you go. There's an answer for you. Fanatical about connectivity. That's a sentence that's yeah. never been said before. Uh, <laughs> Rom, any topic areas that we cover that you just would describe yourself as fanatical? Oh, you really are putting me on the spot. Wrong. <laughs> I would say uh, it, it's probably um, it's people and change management. That's because that's what it's always about anyway, in the end. As much as you guys try to coat it in a veneer of technology, it's never really about that. It's always about people and what they do with it. There you go. Yeah. So, 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 Rob, you, I can put you down for the the next um, the next people article, can I? The next digital bulletin. Yeah, no problem. Good. Okay. Yeah, maybe that, it might be short. Sorted. That's sorted. Now it's good. It's good that we've got a spread across different topics there. Although I did notice nobody chose security, which I'm delighted about. Um, ah. Security though is a very interesting topic. Let me just add that. Right, James, it's a good job you chose connectivity because we're going to change yes. course now. And next up, we're going to chat. Might have known <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I might have known this segue was coming. That might have. <laughs> <my arm. laughs> 
Oh, well, very cooperative of you. Um, next up, we're going to chat all things Labara. Hint, hint, after this. Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram and at Digi underscore Bulletin on Twitter. For this month's case study section, we are going to revisit our work with Labara. Now, Labara is an interesting company. In the telecommunications space, it is one of a handful of providers looking to disrupt the markets with budget SIM-only plans. It's fast growing and its services are now stretching all over Europe, meaning its own technology and teams are needing to be at the cutting edge to keep pace in this fast moving industry. We got the chance to speak to Torsten Minkwitz, Labara's chief technology officer, about the company's decision to go all in on the public cloud. Now, before we get the discussion kicked off in earnest, here is Torsten talking about some of the benefits Labara has already seen from its multi-cloud approach and first giving us insights into the vendor selection process. There's a discussion here you know, who can support us best. And then it's not so much that one is cheaper than the other, they all cost the same. Yeah? But uh, on that side, for example, one vendor came in and said, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna give you architects for free. I mean, I'm gonna give you know-how. I'm gonna bring other vendors in who will help you to be faster. And then we went with, that vendor. Um, it's more about these things than the actual pricing because there's some complexities involved in running two public clouds. Cloud for me is virtualization plus automation. Um, and we get a lot of stuff out of the cloud, all the stuff that the Amazons or the Microsofts or whoever uh, in this world build into their cloud platform where that before we would have to do with lots of people. So now we want to spin up, I don't know, uh, a certain type of software. We basically just go into the console and just spin it up. Before, it would have been like several weeks of work. So there's a lot of this automation uh, um, that is coming with the cloud that is very, very, very good for us. Um, and then we can, again, concentrate on the stuff that creates value, not so much on you know, doing layer by layer by layer of technology. James, this was a big strategy play from Torsten and Labara, wasn't it? What, maybe can you start by talking us through the problems that led them down kind of the cloudification path, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. So at the heart of it, really, Torsten and I think the other members of the, the technology team, what they found were they were in this sort of perpetual cycle of really expensive infrastructure upgrade cycles. Um, really nitty gritty stuff which took time um it, you know very expensive um upgrading their sort of data centers really sort of getting bogged down in works of racks and screws and, and, and stuff like that um and speaking to Torsten, it was a real you could really sense how how frustrated that had made him that you know big portions of his his best technology teams we're, we're having to spend so much of their time getting, you know, sort of working working on these upgrade projects, which, to his mind, understandably, wasn't really adding any value to Labara. It was sort of keeping it where it was, um, and, and you know, and if when they were working on those, they weren't able to uh, to progress any of their internal technology programs or or or, or work on the, on the client side as well, which you know he said he found immensely frustrating and, and no doubt so did so did those technologists and um those professionals in the technology and it team so it really came from um a frustration and an annoyance 
that so much time was being taken up on on these sort of infrastructure cycles. Yeah, it definitely sounds like frustration was kind of the main word here for Torsten, and it, it, it obviously a, a, yeah. a really kind of big decision. I think they've already um, they've already lost or been able to kind of lose one of their data centers, haven't they, because of this shift to um, that's right kind of this yeah. multi-cloud approach. One of the best aspects of the story for me, though, is reading about one of um, Labara's best engineers, one of one of <laughs> it's one of the team's most talented people, basically going up to Torsten and saying, "Am I am I going to be made redundant because all of our <laughs> all of our um, work is now being done on an Amazon cloud. Um, I thought that was, that was yeah. really interesting. It gives it gave us a bit of an insight into, you know, some some of the challenges maybe that we see from a sort of cloud migration project. I think so. We, and we take it for granted, don't we, that, you know, everyone just understands these. But what that shows is even with really experienced engineers, um, there's still some misconceptions around what a move to the, to the public cloud is and sort of their role within it. Because, of course, you still need engineers. Um, you know, and highly talented technologists within the teams. But that I guess that there was also doubts that, that um, Torsten spoke about in the wider company about the sort of viability of moving telco grades technology. So you're talking about sort of IP, voice, charging systems, and sort of migrating that to a public cloud. But but yeah, it's, it, it certainly made me laugh. And, and when Torsten was telling it, he was laughing too, that one of, you know, I think it, it, well, it said it was one of his, you know, his best engineers, and he, he said, you know, just because we're moving to an Amazon-owned cloud, we, you know, we still need talented engineers. But yeah, I think it sort of shows in the microcosm that maybe we take it for granted because we speak to people who understand it every day, CTOs and CIOs. But if you're an engineer, maybe maybe you don't. You know, maybe there is still work to be done. You know, educating people about about what it actually is to migrate to a, to a public cloud. Yeah. It does kind of make you think, doesn't it, about some point in the future where <laughs> companies may just have everything on public clouds and all of it is automated mm. and all of it is basically outsourced. And it makes you think about kind of the future of people. But obviously at the moment, especially in this instance with Labara, it's kind of in the middle of this project and it's still very, very reliant on its on its team. Um, now, okay. talking, talking about his team, um, as James said there, a real motivation for Torsten was freeing up um, members of his team from those kind of labour-intensive infrastructure upgrade projects, and he discusses that more in this clip. I think most of the employees want to add value, and they want to add value to the business, and they want to be seen as doing something for our customer. Um, so I think it's much more fun, and it's also much more rewarding when you say, hey, I've done something that actually added... I don't know, more customers that where we get feedback from the business that it said, oh, that was really helpful that, uh, um, you know, reduced customer complaints or, or improved uh, customer experience or uh, opened a new market or something like that. Everybody wants to get that feedback that you did actually contribute to the success. And um, so I think that's, that's rewarding. Uh, people uh, like that. And um, so uh, I, I believe for the majority of people, that's the way they want to go. Our customers uh, will benefit from the fact that my team, the technology team, will put all its energy into improving customer experience instead of, uh, you know, doing all the screws and the bolts and everything in the infrastructure. Uh, Rom, I'm going to come to you after that clip. Now, we know there's a huge kind of battle for tech talent. Um, in the industry, how important do you think is it for lead to technology leaders like Torsten to offer people the kind of work that he's talking about there, where you're not kind of getting bogged down in the nitty gritty. You are you are working towards 
um, a, a greater good, whether that's kind of customer experience, as, as Torsten said there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what, one of, I think one of the things that's going to help Torsten to do that, of course, is the fact that the, the product of all of these efforts is a fairly dramatic uh, reduction in costs, operational costs. Now, in theory, the company can then reinvest a lot of those savings into um, the kind of environments that it's creating for its its normally very highly paid, talented engineers. Now, it has to because it needs to attract those people from, you know, lots of other companies and businesses that are doing the same sort of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, although actually that kind of shines a light. This year has been a really weird year to try and do that, of course. Um, I don't know. I don't know what James can can offer on this, but um, we we went down there to talk to them um, in a in a lockdown COVID safe kind of uh, way, but found ourselves in an extremely nicely appointed but largely empty office. What actually? Let me just ask you this question, James. What 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 did Torsten have to say about that in terms of the future? And it's not just about reinvesting in. Um, and salaries to make sure that you get the, the best kind of people, but it's about creating rewarding and fulfilling jobs. How are they going to provide that environment? Um, what, what are their plans moving forward after you know the, the craziness of this year? Well, uh, this was a, a couple of months ago that we did it. And um, to all intents and purposes, Torsten was quite frustrated with um, with the situation in the UK. He's, he spends most of his time in, in Germany and the Netherlands, I think. And he was saying that their, you know, the ways that their their teams are working had pretty much gone back to gone back to normal. Um, so he 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 was pretty frustrated with the fact that, um, that despite the fact we were officially out of lockdown, that actually uh, people were very very reluctant to go back to work. That's that's makes it potentially an even more interesting question from my perspective, particularly as I, you know, I was the the guy that said, look, I'm most interested in change management and people. That's um, it's kind of encapsulated in the original question, which is, well, you know, how do you compete for the top talent? What are the top talent going to want six months a year from now, given everything that we've been through? Is it the Netherlands or the German experience? Is it the UK experience? Is it some kind of hybrid beasts out of all of them? Um, under all of that, presumably, the fact that they've cloudified enables them to have lots of options in terms of that stuff. They don't have to have people uh, crawling around on hands and knees, plugging in wires and unscrewing things and, and all the rest of it. You can adapt and accommodate. And uh, you would imagine that Labara are therefore pretty well placed to be able to do that. Uh, certainly versus maybe other companies or competitors that have kind of stuck more closely to a traditional operating model, perhaps because they needed to save money this year, if you see what I mean. So, yeah, yeah. I do. Uh, yeah, I do. But and that, I guess that comes into the conversation about how uh, I was speaking to, we're getting away from the bar side of here, but I was speaking to an executive the other day. He was telling me that a lot of his clients have, have, have been able to sort of pull off cloud programs or, or technology transformations that usually would have taken seven or eight years in, in three or four months. So you'd think that they would come out of the other end of that with a lot more options and for, for their teams and, and how they work and whether it's a hybrid of, you know, working from home and uh, and obviously being, being in the cloud would enable that. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that when, when you consider this, you know, what it's like for a team of technical people, a team of engineers to work fully remotely, how, how that works 
because you hear a lot about scrum teams and agile and being like working together tightly in teams to get things done. I'm sure that has translated to kind of remote working um, in a lot of instances, but obviously Torsten, as you said, James, is of the belief that he'd quite like people to be back in the office at some point, especially when they've got a, a nice, uh, nice big space to be filling it, up. It, it was, it was, it was um, the first time I'd been to a very large, well-appointed office. Um, and it was just, it was the first project that we've done sort of post lockdown one. We are now recording in lockdown two, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we went to this unbelievable office in, in the sort of docks in East London. Um, and you would imagine it, you know, buzzing usually and it had all these brilliant breakout areas for scrums and and you know that way of working it was, it was a place where you felt it could, you could be very dynamic and there was maybe 15 people in there so it was um yeah maybe understand yeah. that Torsten felt a bit downbeat about it I, I'm, I, sure, I agree. Um, I'm sure we are going to go back to normal at some point in the future i'm going to leave it at that I'm not making any more predictions about when exactly that might be um james just to kind of wrap up on this what were your main takeaways from this project because yeah. we you know we write a lot about cloud journeys in fact it's probably the subject we write about the most but this is an opportunity for us oh. to kind of get real insight into a, a, a public cloud migration of which is one that's happening really at scale isn't it definitely uh, i think the one that i had a couple actually one was the 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 savings that they think they're going to be able to make or are already making Torsten in the interview said that this is this is a program which is timetable to to end sort of at the end of 2022 so in a couple of years time um, and savings already be made but he he believes that by the time it's fully integrated um that the the capital expenditure on sort of upgrade projects and installations and that kind of work uh, they will cut that by 50% and now when you're talking about a, you know a, a telco he didn't give figures but that's going to run into into millions into millions of pounds of dollars or so i thought that was that was a big eye opener for me but there was a couple of that would probably be the main takeaway in terms of you know the the money uh, the value that you put on that project um probably the the other one the other one or two maybe we we covered it but obviously there's still a skepticism or a misunderstanding about what um you know public cloud migrations offer or or how that sort of ties into the the tech you know the technological expertise that an enterprise is still going to need I, I think maybe that opened my eyes that actually it's not really fully understood that it's understood by technologists and ctos and cios but you know do the rank and file of technology teams understand it possibly not um and the other thing was just how much he felt you know if you take that all together that the freeing up of technology teams um the, the sort of cutting capex the, the the ability for virtualization and automation spinning up software when he spoke about that all as a package i know that you know public cloud migration is not going to be suitable for everyone but what it really illustrated for me was that if you can do it then you know why wouldn't you because this it, the benefits were just seemed to be anyway absolutely enormous when he when he was listing them so that was that 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 really illustrated for me the sort of value and 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 why you would you know put so much time and effort in, you know into one of these programs yeah that, that makes me think of actually um, a project that I won't reveal the company, but a project we recorded um, very, very recently, or we went and had the production day for, where my, my main takeaway was exactly that. It, the, the company yeah. ended up talking about the cloud provider probably more than they did the actual company. <laughs> so it was, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty, um, pretty incredible kind of how much 
um, how much companies get from a public cloud migration, I think, and, and how that, how that's, mm. how there's going to be so much more to add over the coming years. Um, but yeah. obviously there are many different types of clouds that you can, uh, you can use if you are a business leader listening to this, not just public cloud. So, um, James, thank you for, for your coverage there. Expert, as, as I expected, connectivity bringing you to, to, into your best form. Um, we, <laughs> right, we are going to move on, folks. But if you want to indulge yourself in the full case study on Labara's cloudification, then head over to digitalbulletin.com. In the meantime, we're off for a very, very short break. Power up your day with the Bulletin Brief, the latest news, insights, and opinion delivered straight to your inbox. For our main interview this month, I spoke to Anna Chung, who is a cyber threat research analyst at Unit 42, the threat intelligence arm of Palo Alto Networks. We chatted about the threat level on the dark web and how a combination of man and machine is vital in keeping out cyber attacks that are growing in both number and sophistication. But first, I got Anna to elaborate more on Palo Alto and the intriguing work of Unit 42. I think in Palo Alto Network, uh, we have a lot of really advanced cybersecurity solutions. I remember my first week coming to the company. It feels like, you know, the fans uh, go to uh, the Q's lab from the 007 movie. And I was so amazed by how many things we could do here. And uh, it's been one and a half years now, and I still feel that way every week. Um, in a perfect world, everybody would have access, needs uh, for those products and tools. But... Most of the time, they don't. So Unit 42, we're trying to help people understand the threats in the real world so they can use those informations, prioritize their needs, uh, their resource, their times, and figure out what do they need the most. Uh, we try to stay as realistic as possible. So the goal is to help um, uh, business and individuals to understand the security concerns related to, to them and what are they could do, um, what are the tools they could use to better protect themselves. So cybersecurity is a really stressful topic, and most people feel a bit anxious thinking about it or try to completely ignore it. What we try to do um, in Unit 42 is to empower people with this knowledge and realize there's no need to panic. Okay, no, it's really interesting, exciting, and obviously the job title, cyber threat research analyst. You know, it's kind of it sounds like a kind of exciting job title. What what does a day in the day in the life of a cyber threat research analyst really look like? Can you tell us? Yes, uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I think like most people in the world, we start our day with a huge cup of coffee. And so... <laughs> You're not alone. You're not alone there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And some people start with like news websites. Some people start with you know their social media. And for me, it's start with uh, deep and dark web, um, trying to understand the markets, the new hacking tools, or the new uh, monetization schemes. But this is just one example for to describe the cybersecurity researcher's life. Overall speaking, um, we all spend. Um, a lot of time constantly monitoring external threats uh, out there in the wild, um, such as malware hacking tools, like I said, and also the new technique or certain attackers' campaigns, their behavior, their latest uh, attempts, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, it allows us to enrich our threat intelligence analysis with context, uh, including who, how, and why. 
for example, like if we came across a malicious IP address, we don't want to give um, our Intel consumer this information to say, hey, this is a bad IP address, so block it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't help them to prioritize their task. So for us, the ideal uh, threat intelligence should look like, hey, this is a malicious IP address. Uh, it's being used by this malware family, and this malware usually is tied to a certain campaign, and maybe previously or historically, uh, their targets are specific industry in specific regions, um, and their motivation is probably uh, for uh, your confidential information or your financial information or your account that they could resell later on to um, make their financial profit. So what we want to do is tell a full story so it helps defenders to make faster and more effective decisions for themselves. Okay, now I know, Anna, that you've done various kind of projects before. I know you looked at IoT and the supply chain, for example, security, and now you are kind of looking at the dark web and, and looking at financially motivated kind of cyber attacks. Why are you focusing on that area right now? And, and maybe tell us a bit about, you know, what you found out. So personally, I've always fascinated by human behavior, especially from the macro perspective. And this kind of show in my uh, education background. For me, uh, Deep and Dark Web is a, very much like a cyber anthropology study. At the end of the day, it's uh, a group of people running their business. Uh, they're constantly developing new ideas, new products, and new business models to maximize their financial gains. At the same time, they have risks that they try to avoid, such as being caught, arrested by law enforcement, being disrupted uh, by tech uh, companies, or being scammed by other cyber criminals, which are quite uh, common, actually. I've been working for tech company for 10 years, and I know this, from the system back end, we can see many digital footprints, such as network traffic, uh, suspicious file behaviors. All of this information are very informative, but sometimes I think we forgot that um, cyber attacks are designed and conducted by human beings to target other human beings. So it's important to understand their motivation, their behavior patterns, and sometimes the politics among the cyber criminals. Um, this, and the best way to understand these human beings and observe them is through uh, observing the deep and dark web, which is the marketplace where they exchange their communication, uh, money, and their tool. And sometimes um, the final results after a successful compromise. We needed those to put together a complete holistic understanding about the story, not just when it happened in the system, in the operation environment, but also before the attack. What is their plan? Is there a potential target? Is there any attempt? Um, is there any tools or hiring happening in the underground market? And after intrusions, do they bring the compromised data to underground? What do they do with it? Do they try to sell it? Do they try to utilize those um, compromised data for the next attack? So it's really important for us to have full visibility and understand how the whole things work. 
It's, it's a fascinating area, isn't it? And, you know, generally, Anna, how wary do you think businesses should be? Like, what, what is the threat landscape, do you think, currently on the dark web? And, and what, you know, how wary should, should companies be about this? <laughs> um, I think we categorize uh, cyber attacks based on their motivation. And there are three major uh, commonly seen type of uh, attacks, attackers. There are financial motivated cyber criminals. Uh, there are cyber espionage campaign targeting mostly confidential information. And there are the so-called hacktivism who are uh, political or social uh, ideology driven and want their voice to be heard. Deep and Dark Web is a really good source to understand financial motivated cyber criminals. So uh, based on the motivations, each uh, criminals will or attacker will use completely different tools and have completely different behaviors. Um, and it kind of give us a good understanding what they do uh, and what they might do next. So overall speaking, the findings, um, I think in the underground forums, it's quite interesting to find out there are several regional markets in underground world. They're divided by language, not necessarily the geographic uh, borders. In the virtual world, people usually group together because of their similar mentality, uh, preferred communication and payment tools. And there are several active um, major marketplaces. We know it's English-speaking or Russian-speaking, Spanish-speaking, and Chinese-speaking on the ground market. Each market has its own cultural and systems, and some of them have very clear structure and strict vetting systems. Uh, in some markets, small talks or, or long-term bonding is highly valued, mm -hmm. while in some other markets, small talks is considered a sign of weakness. This is quite interesting for us. Um, so one of our int uh, research interests is globalization um, of the underground markets. In the past, we have seen cyber criminals try to introduce hacking tools or business models from one region to another region. This globalization of cybercrime um, cyber markets facilitate the growth of regional criminals, and this growth encouraged an extended capability to exchange tools, the hacking techniques, and sometimes the results of a successful attack. Um, I would say how worried we should be. Um, I think the, the, the key here um, is definitely a healthy awareness. Uh, although we heard about cyber incidents almost every day and auto attack required an entry point uh, to victim systems. So as a matter of fact, uh, there are many things every online users can do to protect themselves, such as uh, using strong passwords, uh, constantly update their device, patching their operation systems, uh, think twice before you click on any link or attachment. Is it supposed to send to you? Is it sent from a trustworthy sources? And I think for uh, smartphone users, uh, Make sure they only download software and applications from trusted sources such as Apple App Store or Google Play. And, of course, don't use public Wi-Fi uh, without VPN protection. What, what are the next kind of the, the big the big kind of hopes, whether it's a type of technology or a type or a type of approach? Like how, how are we going to keep up with the sophistication of kind of threats on the dark web? Of course, uh, I think one of the 
very key words we heard a lot these days is artificial intelligence and automation. Um, I would say especially uh, automation. So from the technical perspective, uh, automation and machine learning technology uh, plays really critical roles in security prevention. The reason is because of time. Uh, as defender, we want to detect threats as soon as possible. We want to analyze attack across the entire environment, including the endpoints, the network, and the cloud as soon as possible. We want to predict attackers' next step as soon as possible, and we want to implement uh, protection faster than attacks uh, could spread as soon as possible, too. So uh, having all of this, um, all of this requires security team to swim through a large amount of data while also dealing with very overwhelming numbers of incoming alerts. Not only is not fast enough from our perspective, um, we know every, anyone could get a fatigue during this process. So machines are good uh, help in this instance. They're good at doing this repetitive task with high accuracy. They're reliable. And they can, they're really good at uh, identifying groups of threats within a massive amount of data and automatically roll out protections across entire operation environments. This will free up a um, lot of manpower and allow human beings, we human beings, to focus on what we are good at, such as uh, coming up with creative solutions or making strategic uh, decisions. In addition to technical solutions, because we cannot just rely everything on machine, um, a, collabor a collaborative uh, industry culture is also critical for the future security prevention. So every company has their own data, their own uh, malware samples, their own indicators of compromise. Um, as I previously mentioned, cybercriminals are exchanging insights um, in forums in the marketplace. So if we want to win this game, we need to work together as well. Palo Alto, uh, my company, we co-found a collaborative program called Cyber Threat Alliances. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization now. Uh, it, the purpose, the goal is to exchange the intelligence with all major uh, vendors. It's a really significant and beautiful change in this industry. So instead of pr productizing uh, this insight, this threat intelligence, the members of CTA use uh, standardized formats to exchange uh, their valuable raw data and analysis. Uh, if I remember correctly, by as of now, 2020, there's about 4.5 observables being exchanged through the program per month. That's fascinating, yeah. actually. Yeah, no, and, and collaboration is one thing that um, we're seeing a lot across the kind of tech world at the moment, especially since the pandemic. Do you think, then, Anna, that with, with that kind of renewed kind of collaboration and kind of open um, industry that you're talking about there and the technologies, the machine learning, AI that are kind of supporting this, do you feel positive generally about the future of being safe on, online and companies being safe from cyber attacks? Because actually a lot of the headlines in this area are quite negative still and, and I don't know there, there seems to be a bit of a, a not a culture of fear but certainly recognition that there there are sort of a lot of um opportunities to, to be attacked and we we all, we see all see the headlines about when a when a company's um security is breached and the kind of negative headlines that surround that do you, ultimately though do you kind of feel positive that the industry is heading in the right direction well yes of course I feel uh positive about the futures uh from the defense perspective uh yeah. It's not only because I'm biased and committed my entire career in this, <laughs> <Yeah>. but, also, 
but like scientifically speaking, um, as a healthy organized, uh, as a healthy industry, we do include and invite professional white hat uh, attacker to be part of our development and our security exercise that constantly improve our detection rates uh, and raise our bars, right? And it's also important to highlight because I think if we want to win this game uh, together as a whole, what is the definition of a real win in the end of the day? Um, while we continue to research uh, malicious hacking tools and advance our technical features, um, we still see some really old tricks from 10, 15 years old. So um, social engineering, let's say, uh, still cause a lot of damage to the general public. And many of the newspaper headlines that we see these days are caused by tricks like this because they give the initial access to the attacker. Let's say uh, during the pandemic, uh, it's, a, an, it's a really good example. Um, so we all spend a lot of time to uh, seek information, solution, uh, comfort, or sometimes distraction online. And this gives malicious attack a really good opportunity to attack and spread phishing emails or fake applications. It's uh, not because attacker all in a sudden come up with like some really powerful technical breakthrough that will drastically increase their success rate, but simply because we, um, as online user, we change our online behavior and our pattern in response to this crisis. So if I put it into analogy, it's like a house, right? Um, what professional defenders are doing is constantly design stronger walls, building better locks to protect what's inside of the house. But what we really need to do and spend some time to do is to promote security awareness for every house owners or every resident. They need to stop um, leaving the door or windows open when they're out or even when they're at home. And they need to stop bringing suspicious package into the house. I think from the defense perspective, winning the battle together with everyone is the success that we really want at the end of the day. We are going to end things there, listener, but not before I've had the chance to do some plugs. There's more content than ever flowing through digitalbulletin.com and Tech for Good, our sister website. And one thing to look out for, we will be launching a Tech for Good podcast very soon. So keep an eye or an ear out for that, I suppose. All that leaves me to do is to thank my panel. Romilly, thank you very much. No, no, thank you. And James, thank you very much. My pleasure. And a big thank you to you two listeners. Stay safe and well, and we will be with you again in a month's time. Goodbye. That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast, brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation. 